If you brought your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. If you'd like to go ahead and turn there, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Uh, We will also dip into the book of John, uh, the first chapter, but Ecclesiastes 9 uh, is where we're going to start. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. There's probably also a pew Bible around you somewhere if you would like to grab one of those. Sometimes we have high hopes. Think of a seven-year-old boy on Christmas Eve. Hasn't seen his dad since he left three years ago and can't remember beginning to get to that point where he can't even remember what his voice sounds like. Losing the only picture he had of him a month ago, suspecting that his mom probably threw it away, but hoping that something might happen, something might change even writing a letter to Santa this year asking that he could see his dad one more time. Imagine your high school graduation being six months away and the excitement of living in the real world is almost palpable, more than you can bear. Even though it was difficult at times, you did your best to keep your grades up and earned a pretty good grade throughout high school. And so you send your college application into the school that you've always dreamed of going to, hoping that they write back to tell you that you're accepted You wake up one morning only to realize that the person you have shared a bed with and a home with for the last 25 years, your spouse, has become a complete stranger. You thought that the new house would help or maybe that the kids moving out would somehow make it better, but that only seemed to make things worse. No matter how hard you try, you can no longer convince yourself that you're still in love. After yet another day of awkward silence, you pick up your phone and begin to, the dial, begin to dial the number of your friend who suggested a marriage counselor to offer some help and some hope. Sometimes we get our hopes up, but cynicism often brings those hopes crashing back to earth. There's no way that seven-year-old is going to see his dad again. He's a deadbeat. Everybody knows that. Everybody who knows him knows that. What that kid should be doing is being thankful for his mom and just moving on already with life. Only the top students are accepted at that school that you applied to, so don't get your hopes up. There's no way, even though you had decent grades, they weren't good enough. You're not smart enough to get accepted into that school, so go ahead and begin making mental preparations to go to your backup school. True love doesn't last. The world tells us that. You just haven't been listening. You and your spouse are different people than you were 25 years ago when you got married, so throw in the towel now and pursue your own happiness while you still have a chance. This kind of cynicism is often indicative of our world today. Expressions of hopelessness, expressions of why get your hopes up and not just move on and do what you can now and live it up in the moment. But that cynicism is hardly particular to our day and age. See, cynicism is as old as time. Contrary to what you may think, cynicism isn't new As long as there has been hope in the world, cynicism has been trying to destroy it. And if you need evidence of that, open the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a reminder of a cynical worldview, what a cynical worldview looks like of life under the sun. And that's where we're going to turn this morning. I promise there's a hopeful point, but we're going to delve into this book full of cynicism and look at what a world looks like without a God who has come for us. Before we do that, let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for every day that we wake up and have a moment, have an opportunity to see and hear what you have for us. God, to see and hear what you have called us to. God, I pray now that you would remove distractions from our minds, from our hearts, so that we may hear what you have for us. And God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, God, that you would speak to each person here this morning in such a way that it would bring transformation in our lives. God, we depend wholly upon your Spirit for that movement, and we pray that you would remove everything else, including myself, from that equation. God, we love you, and we thank you for being allowing us to be in your presence this morning. I pray that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So again, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses one through 10. The author of Ecclesiastes, who many believe is Solomon, but we'll just call him the preacher, says this, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead." But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and Sheol, to which you are going. Hardly a passage one might assume would be read in light of the idea of hope, but again, I'll get there. Life under the sun is the preacher's way of saying life without God, life on earth. We might uh, think of today, uh, we might think of the secular world today, a life absent of a presence of God, absence of a thought of God. This is life under the sun that all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, this preacher, this author calls vanity or useless. Uh, It is useless toiling. Everything that we do in this life under the sun from a worldly perspective, according to the author of Ecclesiastes, is vanity in this life. And he comes to this point in chapter 9, several uh, pages, several chapters uh, into his argument saying these words about death. This same event 
that happens to all, this is what he's talking about, is the event that is death. And it brings to, it comes to all no matter what they do in life. You have heard it said, one thing that, that a cliche, I don't know who said it first, but that death is the great equalizer. I believe the preacher would agree with that statement. Uh, that no matter how good someone was or how bad they were, no matter if they made sacrifices to God or they didn't, meaning whether they were obedient to God or they weren't, uh, whether they, they, no matter what they did, they would all end in the same place. We would look at it again through our worldly perspective in our world today that say the richest and the poorest, you're not taking it with you. Whether it's a debt or whether it's riches, you're not going to carry it with you into the grave. So everybody ends up on the same level. It is the great equalizer. And not only that, but centuries past from now, when, when great people that we would consider are you know, extremely important and celebrities and so on and so forth have passed, we will look back, not we, someone in the very distant future will look back, and most of those people, even the ones that we consider incredibly important, will have been forgotten. There will only be a handful of people whose memories will stand the test of time, but eventually even they, even they will be forgotten in life under the sun as time moves on and on and on. We all end up in the same place, the preacher says, no matter what we do, not only in humanity, but even in all creation, this is the case. Think of it through our modern scientific mindset. If you look at what the scientists say about the universe, that everything will eventually perish and some great calamity is either the, the universe spreads further and further apart from one another that everything eventually just freezes or they think that it might all come back together in one big explosion. Again, I don't know, there's tons of theories, but everything is aging, everything is dying. Even the most massive stars in our observable universe, scientists tell us, will one day come to death. It is the great equalizer. But as long as you're alive, the preacher says, there's a little bit of hope at least for the day. From the world's perspective, life is a non-renewable resource. You only got one. You only live once. So live it up. Eat, drink, be merry. Life is like a big feast that's set before you on Thanksgiving Day or on Christmas. Or if you go out to your favorite restaurant, you're only going to eat that meal once. So enjoy it. Savor it. That's what the world would tell us. That's what toil life is like under the sun. That this is all you got. So live it up and enjoy it. It's essentially what we see the author of Ecclesiastes saying. And so let me pause here to ask you, how does this hit you? How does this worldview come on you? What, what do you think about it? Does it make you feel warm and fuzzy inside? You know, this is one of the reasons why I love the Bible. Because there's a lot of things in the Bible that just aren't easy. That the people who put the Bible together, who, who, who took all of these writings that are inspired and, and breathed by the Holy Spirit and delivered them to us in such a way that we could use them to allow God to speak into our lives, they, they didn't leave portions like this out. They could have. Many of us probably would have when we read the words of Ecclesiastes, when we read someone in the Bible saying, all of life is vanity. Oh, vanity of vanities. Surely we would leave that part out. But no. They leave this truth of the Word of God in there because there is a deeper point. If it hits you with anger and frustration, if you think, no, it shouldn't be this way, there, there should be something else, it's, it's not fair that we all go to the same place. It's, it's not fair that, that our lot is all in dying. 
Shouldn't there be something that, that allows things to be just? Shouldn't the evil be punished and the righteous be rewarded? Shouldn't there be something beyond this life? If that's how it hits you, the preacher even foresaw that in verse 3 when he says that this is a great evil in all that is done under the sun, that we all end up in the same place. He expresses that very concern that maybe you felt just as I felt when I read these words again for the first time. It's not right. This isn't okay. He's saying even that, in essence, then, is vanity. Even that is railing against life under the sun. So the question that inevitably comes, at least in my mind, when reading this passage and others like it throughout this book is, so why bother? Why bother? with devotion to God. If this is all we have, if there is no life after this one, why do we need to bother with obedience? Why do we need to bother with worship? Why do we need to bother with devotion, with learning more about our God, hearing from our God? Why bother with right behavior, with moral behavior? Why bother with right and wrong even if all we are supposed to do is live it up in this life under the sun? Certainly would ask the question, why bother doing good to others? Again, I should just get mine and be happy with myself. Why should I worry about how other people feel if there's no eternal significance? And finally, most importantly, or the one that hits me the hardest anyway, is why bother with love? If it's all going to be rent apart and end in heartache or nothingness, why even bother with that? Now, I believe that the author of Ecclesiastes is putting this forward so that we will think through these questions so again, bear with me just a little bit more. I want to share with you a poem that I may, that I'm pretty sure we've talked about before, but haven't read in its entirety. It's also got a hymn based upon it. It's called "I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day," a poem written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It's a poem that I think about often during this time of year, and certainly make part of my own devotional life. And that's why we're going to talk about it today. What I want to tell you about is, even though that this song is known for its hopefulness. It comes from a dark place. It comes from a dark life, even. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote that poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, upon which the song is based that we all sing often on Christ, during Christmas seasons. Let me tell you a little bit about him. His first wife died after a miscarriage, and he mourned her death for years. In one of his poems, Longfellow laments spending so much of the early part of his life in pain and sorrow. He remarried later in life to a woman named Fanny, and they had six children together. Two terrible things happened in Longfellow's life in 1861. In April of that year, the first shots of the Civil War were fired. And in July, Fanny, Longfellow's new wife, died. She was badly burned after accidentally starting a fire while trying to preserve some locks of her children's hair in wax dripped from a candle. Longfellow found her in flames and tried to put the fire out and burned himself badly in return, so badly that he was unable to attend her funeral. His face was also scarred, and due to the pain of that scarring, he could no longer shave, which is why, if you ever see a picture of him, he grew his famous beard. The first Christmas after Fanny's death, Longfellow wrote these words in his journal, how inexpressibly sad are all holidays. And a year after the incident, he wrote, I can make no record of these days. Better to leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. 
Longfellow's journal entry for December 25th, 1862, the next Christmas, two years after his wife's death, reads, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. In the year 1863, the Longfellow's, Longfellow's oldest son, Charles, is badly wounded in the Civil War, taking a bullet to his shoulder. And Longfellow's journal, at this point, is silent on the Christmas of 1863. But suddenly, for some reason, perhaps the seeming closeness of the end of the war, Longfellow's spirit seems to be lifted in the Christmas of 1864 when he pins the words to the poem that would become the hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Now, the poem is different from the hymn that we have in our hymnals. In that two verses were removed for the hymn and another one was ranged in a different place. So I want you to listen to the poem as it was originally written. And I hope that you listen for Longfellow's journey from despair to hope. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then, from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the houses born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then he reaches the bottom of his hopelessness, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, that's not the end of the poem, but let's stop there for one second. This is the view of life under the sun. This is what a life lived apart from a God who has come for us through Christ, what that kind of life looks like, sounds like, and feels like. This is what the author of Ecclesiastes was trying to convey to us so that we might understand the utter hopelessness that comes in a world under the sun apart from Christ. You see, he started in such optimism in this, in this poem, that, 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 that all the belfries of Christendom have been rolling along this whole time in an unbroken song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. You see, before some of the horrors of the early American world, the, the Civil War the, and the first couple of world wars, there was several Christians that thought things would eventually get better until Jesus came back. They, they called that post-millennialism. That's a whole different topic, but it just means that everything in the world would get better, 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 and then suddenly things would be so good that Jesus would come back. All of the wars in the 20s and in the 40s caused most of the church to abandon that thought when a reality sunk in that we're not getting better as a human race, we might actually be moving the other direction. And it is that expression that we see in these words from Longfellow. Peace on earth, that's a lie. Hate is strong and it mocks that song. There is no peace on earth. And yet he finishes with this last refrain, again, seemingly out of nowhere. Then... Pilled the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. 
The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. How could this man pen those words? Living a life of despair, of not only seeing two of his wives die, both of whom he mourned deeply and greatly, but also trying to raise his children in such an ungodly fallen world, Uh, the Civil War and everything that was going on around it, living through that time, living through that death, even his own son, his son did survive, but even his own son becoming a casualty and being shot in the shoulder and dealing with all of that. How could that man reflect on everything that had happened and start with such optimism in life, be brought down to such a pit of despair, yet in the end his final words are, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. How could that be the place where he ends? What gave this man hope at the end? What brought an end to his despair? And I believe we could find that in Scripture as well. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the opening lines to John's gospel. He writes these words, you know them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the, and the, excuse me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is what we celebrate during humanity himself in the human form, because without him we are utterly hopeless. Without him we are living a toilsome and vain life under the sun, to which we can come to the conclusion that the author of Ecclesiastes, I believe, sarcastically does when he says, what point is there in this? We're all going to end up in the same place, so just live it up while you got it. Don't worry about what's coming next, but no, the gospel tells us. The good news tells us that darkness has been pierced by the good news of the light of life and in the light of men. I said earlier that as long as there has been hope in the world, cynicism has been trying to destroy it. Let me follow that up with a greater truth. As long as there has been cynicism in the world, hope has overcome it. And it will continue to do so over and over and over again. My God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. He is alive and well. And I celebrate the reality that he came for us, that he descended from heaven where there is eternal light into the darkness of worldly despair so that he might Pick us out of that darkness and allow us to sing with Longfellow that peace on earth, goodwill to men. There is hope. So let me tell you this morning a few things. I hope that you understand that the Bible is realistic about our world. Again, this is one of the reasons why I love it. It doesn't shy away from difficult thoughts and subjects the Bible and the reason why Ecclesiastes even exists is uh, uh, an honest observance of a truth that life can feel empty, pointless, and unworthy of our hearts, unworthy of our effort, 
unworthy of our thought and love and devotion. Life can feel unworthy of all of that. And that is so much what is at work in the world today where so many people just check out from life and just try to, 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 to get what they can while they're here to enjoy what they got in front of them. And, and if they can't enjoy that, they, they, they find some substance to abuse or a, a part of their mind to retreat into and, and things just, they just fall apart. Because that's what happens in a life under the sun. That's what happens in a world absent of the presence and spirit of God. The Bible does not run away from that fact. In fact, it boldly puts it out in front of us. This is what that world apart from Christ looks like. But what I encourage you to do, Christian, follower of Jesus, is look not at what lies under the sun. Look not at the secularness of our world, what you can see and touch and feel. Now look deeper because all of that is vanity. All of that is passing away to the same location. It's all going to die someday. Instead, look above. Look beyond. Look for the life, the light of life that is there. A darkness that will be overcome by that light. The hope of the coming of Jesus Christ is a hope that will never be extinguished. And so I come to you this morning recognizing the same reality that the preacher of Ecclesiastes did, that some of you are here this morning feeling like all of this, and maybe it's not life in general, maybe it's a certain element, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your family, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's your relationship with Christ. You've come feeling this morning thinking all of this is pointless. What are we doing? Why are we, are we getting anywhere with this one? It's just the same monotony day after day. That's so much of what Ecclesiastes talks about, just the monotonous day after day life under the sun where nothing seems new and fresh. Can I tell you that elsewhere in the Old Testament, God tells us that his mercies are new every morning? Can I tell you that in the end, that, that God, when Jesus comes back in the fullness and revelation, that He says to John, who is listening to his account, Behold, I'm making everything new, every day fresh. I hope that you hear that this morning, if you feel hopeless. And I hope that you understand that it's not easy, that it's not something that can be grasped and held onto at all times. It's in this part of the world, it's on this part of existence, it's slippery. (laughs) Sometimes we have a good hold of it, and sometimes we don't, and that's part of humanity. We struggle with it. But I hope that even when it is slippery, that you can take hope in the reality that God descended into this madness, into this chaos, because he loves you and because he wants to spend eternity with you. And that is reason to hope for today, for tomorrow, and forever. So this morning, as we enter into our time of invitation, if you are feeling hopeless, if you are feeling the monotony of life, I hope that you would take this time to, to spend time in the Lord's presence, to ask him to remind you of the hope that you have in him, to celebrate that hope that you do have, to pray with him, to be honest with him, like the author of Ecclesiastes that other people in Scripture are, and ask him to restore to you the joy of your salvation and the hope that he placed inside you. If you need to pray about this or anything else, I will be down here to pray with you this morning. The altar will be open if you would like to pray there. But as always, you can certainly pray right where you are at. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray.
then, our, uh, then Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in a song of invitation. As they do that, again, I encourage you just to spend time with the Lord in whatever way he leads you to. Father, we thank you for this morning once again. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. God, we thank you that your hope is greater than our cynicism. And that in you, our hope is greater than the cynicism of a very cynical world. God, I pray that as we find ourselves surrounded by darkness, God, that you would place your light within us and around us through your Holy Spirit and through the church, the people of God gathered around us in our daily lives. And God, I pray that you would remind us, God, that you would show us, even today, give us a reminder of how you have overcome the world, how you have overcome the darkness and cynicism. God, thank you for your hope. God, we hope in knowing that you have saved us and you will come for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.